Human rights came to make sense in a world of decolonized states, but in which not all states are trustworthy. Outrages against humanity like the slave trade once justified empire, as in the scramble for Africa after 1885. Now, they justify opprobrium against states that spent the first decades after World War II winning independence from empire. And even for Westerners, especially for Westerners, human rights were discovered by masses of people only after they'd first tried other things and given up on them in despair. Our idealism is one born of disappointment, not of horror or of hope. That's Professor Samuel Moyne, who's joining us today out of Yale University to talk about his new book, Not Enough, The Origins of Human Rights and How the Idea of Human Rights is Sometimes Tied to Political Ideology. If you tuned into our episode with Chase Madar, you'll appreciate some of the questions we'll be dealing in this episode. What's so special about the 1970s, and how does how we think about the emergence of human rights impact what we think of what human rights are, and indeed, what are they supposed to do? Join us for another episode of Declarations, where we explore human rights in real life. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Mamoudi, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Surer. Hi. <laughs> and our regular panelists, Aranjajit Basu. Hi. Daniel Ferguson. Hello. I'm Samuel Moyne. I'm American. I, you know, am a historian primarily by training. I, I went to law school as well. And uh, belatedly in my career, I've started teaching in law schools and not just in, in you know, history faculties in the United States. Uh, and uh, I'm very interested in, uh, you know, where human rights came from, but also in, in, in leaving the field after a lot of writing and, and moving on to some other topics like, um, like how uh, uh, we've made war more humane but more difficult to contain in time and space. I'm very excited for this episode, as this is something all the panelists have been very, looking, very much looking forward to discussing with you. Um, and your groundbreaking work, The Last Utopia, deals with this idea of hum- the emergence of human rights or the tale that we tell of the emergence of human rights is sort of a fable. Um, and you situate the emergence of human rights in a particular uh, moment that is not exactly how human rights are traditionally historiographized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so do you mind briefly just running uh, through the general ideas about where you think we should situate the emergence of human rights language and discourse, but also why it matters that we get the chronology right. It's a it's a fantastic question, and chronology doesn't in itself matter. It just is that when we get the time right, we get at the causes, uh, and therefore we get at the actual reasons why human rights became something of such significance as as a cause, as a, a, a legal regime, weak as it is, uh, as, as um, an, a larger you know, set of beliefs. So as you implied, the general view ha- has been and still is uh, that human rights are very old. Um, some people are willing to take them back, um, back to classical times within Western history or in the case of a figure like Amartya Sen to moments in all cultures, um, which merely have kind of come together lately, um, or in of the West again to the Jewish or Christian religion. Um, more plausibly, I have never doubted, and I think no one does, that the very idea that individuals have non-negotiable entitlements against society and the state um, is pretty old. Um, it's just that um, the, the values that that premise protected um, are pretty different from our own. And for a long time, that basic moral idea played a very different role in international politics than it does now. So for a long time, what you might call Human Rights 1.0 was about uh, revolution. Uh, founding states, uh, building sovereignty with violence if necessary. And so I pose myself the question when that changed, when the update occurred, human rights became for us um, a language that if you like is more moral and pol- than political or maybe um, at least put a different way 
is less connected to violence and above all the the experience of of statehood and sovereignty rather it's about um, subjecting sovereignty to constraints sometimes chosen as in treaties but yeah not always chosen um, and um, for the sake of individuals whom states may brutalize um, so when I asked that question I began to focus uh, on the 1970s the 1970s themselves are unimportant I was born then but you were not uh, so for you what uh, what's their significance um, and I don't attach any except that that seemed to be this moment of update and so I delved into what happened then and then how we understand the rise of human rights since that discontinuous moment so uh, sort of to again take it back to a little bit of what Chase had to say as well about he, he gave a fantastic talk and also spoke to us about the weaponization of, of human rights and some of your work um, recently as well, I remember a particularly fantastically written lawfare article where you termed the use of human rights by the US in particular as I think cosmopolitan uh, parochialism, I think was the term that you used. And in many ways you have argued that in the way US saw human rights for some time was more of US foreign policy law rather than you know international human rights law as such. So. I mean, just because we've also had this discussion before on the weaponization of, of human rights as well, and that's something that clearly you have also referred to in a lot of your work. I'm wondering if this sort of study of when human rights emerged is linked in any way to how countries have maybe strategically used the language of human rights to um, further ends that aren't really norms or moral based. So what is your take on that? Well, so, so I would say all states are constantly pursuing um, constructed interests. Uh, you know, I'm not a believer in these IR debates, uh, you know, which force us to choose between ideals and interests is what makes the world go round because it seems like these categories go together. Um, and there have been many states in world history, almost none have pursued human rights either by that name or in any, you know, recognizable form. Um, and the United States is one of the first, maybe the second, uh, and certainly, you know, the greatest power ever to present itself uh, as um, forging a human rights policy. Now, in other states, that went along with a kind of different approach to human rights law. Um, so we have to remember, since if you know you all are taking law classes, some of you, that. America has adopted a very stringent approach to human rights, which pr presents them as exports, uh, not imports. You know, the president of my country at this moment I see as discontinuous named Jimmy Carter in, in his farewell address famously says, uh, you know, um, uh, America did not invent human rights. Human rights invented America. Uh, and yet the fact is that the United States has ratified very few human rights treaties. Those they have ratified, starting from, you know, now almost a, a, a dualist, uh, you know, posture, um, are not implemented. They're saddled with disabling reservations. Uh, there's no ratification of any optional protocols which would submit the United States to more than monitoring uh, under international law. Um, there's still a doctrine uh, which has been broadly rejected by all other states that human rights treaties don't have extraterritorial effect. Uh, the U.S. under President Obama changed ever so slightly with respect to one treaty, the Convention Against Torture. Meanwhile, since the 70s, the United States, like other states, um, has had this outward-facing human rights policy. Um, it tries to promote human rights, sometimes in weaponized forms, though that's not the most usual uh, way that its foreign policy works when it tries to promote human rights. Now, can this be justified? Well, some liberals in my country think that 
its justification is that the choice is not between having human rights imported too, but not having them exported at all. Uh, and so, of course, they prefer that option. They just see the domestic opposition to human rights internally internalized the United States is so unbeatable that they, if you like, give up in advance. Uh, uh, so there, of course, we have constitutional rights. Um, others have justified it in another way, saying maybe it's a right to have the superpower, because that's what it is, have a distinctive relationship to the international world order. And one of the founding U.S. human rights lawyers named Lewis Henkin, who taught at Columbia University for many years, famously said that the United States is to international human rights the way a flying buttress is to a cathedral. It holds it up. It, give it gives it the possibility of beauty precisely by standing outside. Uh, but many of us think that view is, is not defensible um, because it doesn't seem that beautiful if it ever was. I recently came across a piece of work that you contributed to called The Right to Have Rights with Dugoyan Hunt. And it sort of strikes me, based on what you've just described, that constitutional rights, or at least rights within the domestic spheres, rights that, that transpire out of citizenship, are really the only kinds of rights that we can be talking about in real terms when it comes to international human rights and when it comes to for the facade of, of exporting human rights, really what can the U.S. effectively accomplish, right? When, when really they have no control over the kind of rights that emerges out of citizenship, so to speak. It's a great question. I'll take a somewhat different view, but, but it, it, it's, it's kind of along the lines you're sketching. So I have been highly influenced by this political thinker, Hannah Arendt. Um, she herself was quite skeptical about um, human rights, uh, for reasons we could get into. But what I found persuasive about her work is that she says that what we should want most is agency as citizens. And the fact is that rights, though she disdained them, um, even human rights that are you know, based in this fundamental moral premise that individuals have non-negotiable entitlements, can be a language of of citizenship uh, and of course it's the way that modern politics has been often conducted is arguing within our citizenship space about who gets rights and which ones but what I want to insist is that that's not the only citizenship language and we have to concede to Karl Marx whatever else we might want to reject from his doctrines that rights have had a gravitational pull to say libertarian outcomes, economically unequal outcomes. The more that citizenship is defined around individual rights, the more it must confront the risk of shortcomings with respect to other important moral principles, one of which is distributive equality. So I would say we should welcome the role that rights can play in defining our citizenship, but it's not an exclusive role. And there are other principles. Now, where I disagree with you, I think, is that I don't want to rule out in advance what the proper limits of the space is. And of course, we can claim that like the vocation of the idea of a human right is to be universal. It's framed in terms of all of us. Uh, it's just that when I look at the way that human rights have actually functioned in international politics, they seem to face these objections, uh, which they haven't, you know, adequately confronted, or more, you know, more accurately, we haven't adequately confronted. One is which they seem to serve great powers most of all, um, and you know, another is that they've 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 somehow, especially at the international level, ousted other principles. So just as at the domestic level, we can defend rights only so long as we make room for other things too. So at the international level, or maybe someday at, at the level of like a world polity, we wouldn't want a world policy polity 
or even just an international system that defends basic rights that is incredibly unequal, right. just as an example. So this is why I posed the question in this new book, not the one you mentioned on, in which I just wrote a little chapter, but um, a, a, an actual you know, full-fledged book mm -hmm. called Not Enough, uh, Human Rights in an Unequal World. What's the relation between the rise of human rights since the 70s and kind of the, the, the most important development in that period, um, which is neoliberalism? One of our earlier panelists, Max Curtis, posed the question following his reading of, of David Harvey, that, that Harvey talks about how human rights are essentially bourgeois because human rights only cares about what you can see from, from the outside, right? In the context of the workplace especially, but not about what happens on the inside with all the intricate power relations, and is it useful to then operate from within the framework of, of rights when, for example, discussing workers' rights, especially in the landscape of, of neoliberalism following the 1970s and, and how we think about reclaiming workers' rights today? It's a great question. You know, it's very interesting because there's David Harvey is one of the principal Marxists of our time, and there are, but there are lots of others. And, and Marxists, of which I'm not one, kind of debate with one another how seriously to take different parts of Marx's legacy. One part of Marx's legacy is his early essay called On the Jewish Question, which basically says because of their form and their relationship to the state, um, you know, human emancipation can't, can't depend on rights. And it must transcend the merely political emancipation that bourgeois rights affords. Now, if we look later in Marx's career, he actually stands up for various kinds of economic and social rights as a matter of kind of campaign and strategy. David Harvey is interesting because in his book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, he ultimately kind of defends human rights. Um, now, remember, Marx defended the bourgeoisie as the most historically progressive force in world history to that date it's just that it had be you know found an, an, an founded a new system of oppression um, and similarly harvey sort of says human rights you know can play a valuable role other marxists are kind of more faithful to the hardcore uh, position that human rights are kind of always on the wrong side um, i would say that economic and social rights are incredibly important but it, it depends on what larger political um, in, you know, enterprise um, that they're a part. So consider that in the founding of welfare states, like in this country, other countries, um, you have lots of uh, you know, economic and social rights that are propounded and institutionalized. Um, and yet it was in connection with other ideals, um, notably, um, a more egalitarian distribution um, than had prevailed in the 19th century under free market mm -hmm. capitalism at, or in our time under neoliberal capitalism. Whereas the risk is that not that we would, you know, conclude that economic and social rights, like la including labor rights, are useless or reinforce oppression, which just doesn't seem plausible to me. Mm -hmm on their face or as they've worked in the real world. What is plausible is that they haven't been connected to a more ambitious project. Right. Um, so my, my ultimate conclusion is that human rights are good for what they're good for. Um, and we have to check who they're serving and what larger project they're, you know, they're buttressing. And only then can we come to a judgment about them, whether labor rights or human rights in general. I want to touch on this question of this larger project of human rights. Um, and the thing that I find so refreshing about your work is the way that you're able to um, deal with the multiple faces of rights. So the normative basis of it, which is the basis that a lot of human rights uh, practitioners and scholars love to sit in, but also the political face of rights, its situation in law and order internationally and in, in international uh, unequal structures of power. Um, and so it's easy then to either situate yourself on one side or the other side without having to then um, negotiate with the difficulties that come with that kind of liminal space in between. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you uh, endeavor on this. I was wondering how, especially since we've already talked about how the United States positions itself outside of human rights um, as a construct, it's, it, how far do you think human rights then 
um, participate human rights discourse internationally participates in a project of setting up different tiers and forms of governance um, to which different actors are subject um, and have to respond to in different ways and how much do you think that has to do with uh, the way that the international system is structured and unequal flows of power internationally I, I, I think it, you know a very great deal um, but you know the question is then what we say about about human rights um, as as a result of this finding. So just as a preliminary, um, I really you know ag agree with your formulation. If if we knew that human rights were just you know utter evil, I think few of us you know would get interested in them. the The fact is that they're ambiguous. That they do possess a kind of appeal in our time, and just as prior you know prior youth and professors might have sat around a table 50 years and debated, you know, why Christianity had gone so wrong, given its vocation to, you know, provide universal redemption, you know, in spite of all the other, you know, religions in the British Empire and so forth, which they believed here at Cambridge until rather recently. Um, so today we sit around the table and say, why given their appeal and in a sense our uh, our our you know intuition that they ought to be you know things in which we invest our hopes and dreams have human rights failed us so uh you know i guess i would say the reason is that they've coexisted um with a divided humanity you know human rights pre presuppose that humanity is one but they inhabit an unequal, uh, you know, state structure. We have formal equality of states, which is, you know, a principle of international law, but informally, we have massive gradients of, of, of power and wealth. And so human rights, to the extent they don't, their advocates don't stare at hard and acknowledge the significance of this hierarchy are doomed to live in it. So we could take the example of the International Criminal Court since it's so graphic. Um, we can talk more broadly about the Global South and its participation going back as far as you like in human rights. Um, but clearly, uh, at the time of the Rome Treaty, the so-called you know group of like-minded states, which included many uh, global Southern countries, felt this was a really exciting project. Uh, but then, as a result of the way it works in practice, uh, African leaders realize that it's primarily a project of selective enforcement against them. And why is this? Not because they're usually not guilty. They are. They should be punished. But it seems as if we're in a situation of selective justice where only they are punished. Um, and that's because my country doesn't ratify the treaty, uh, other countries do and, you know, aren't subject to enforcement. Um, they do a sufficient amount under the so-called complementarity regime so that uh, the international court's jurisdiction doesn't kick in. Most graphically, the international criminal court can get cases not because states have consented to the treaty, but because the Security Council, which is like the most graphic example of world hierarchy built into the actual governance of the of 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 world politics can can tar can target them so this is just one example and we could you know go down the list which countries are subject to humanitarian intervention well not mine uh, even though we can argue in the age of black lives matter that there are atrocities uh, that Maybe they're not as bad. We have can debate that, but um, it's not. It's 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 it. Humanitarian intervention has to live within, you know, and therefore be applied to the the weak amongst the powerful, not the powerful amongst the powerful. So that's why we need human rights to be nested in some larger projects. That's a, that's about uh, facing world hierarchy, and and considering how it can be undone. Do you think human rights are equipped to fill, fill that role? Like, no. Can they be... No, that's why they're just 
you know, it's like if I ask, can a hammer turn a screw? Uh, the answer is no, but nobody would propose to throw away the hammer because there are still nails sometimes. Uh, so my sense is that human rights aren't equipped to do a lot of things, but that doesn't no mean we don't need to do those things. We need to find other tools and connect human rights, which I, in my opinion are, 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 are normatively defensible, even if in practice bound up with you know, hierarchy and great power, connect them with a broader agenda, including one that connects with distributive justice. It also appears that human rights has often sort of been this depoliticized language, right? Where where you can talk about human rights that everybody can get get around, and all states can outwardly get around the idea that we all have certain entitlements that 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 we ought to receive. But when you're talking about the political project of of changing things, I think that has to be almost defined on its own terms, completely separately from human rights. Not because human rights cannot fuel it, but because human rights is an area in which politics is almost frowned upon yeah this is a controversial subject i mean what i call human rights 1.0 were nakedly political right. they were about toppling kings constitutionalizing monarchy right. maybe getting rid of it uh for the sake of of republics and democracy uh and even even the the most you know basic right is is an assertion about the illegitimacy of the way the powerful wield their power. Uh, so no one could deny that, but the question is what human rights have become. Uh, so they're an activist language, uh, but what kind, even as they also become a language for states, notably mine in their outward facing roles. So as I have argued you know, very badly because it's been very misunderstood, uh, in the last utopia, human rights kind of won out because they seemed like an alternative to politics. I would never suggest that they were somehow apolitical. It's just they were presented as such and um, seemed less contentious. It seemed like unlike things like anti-colonialism or socialism, which demanded big change, Human rights were already things the powerful, in theory, accepted, including by ratifying treaties. And so activists could say, instead of you know, um, engaging in contentious and especially violent politics, here's some principles with which you, the state, already agree uh, and, 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 and make a more, let's call it apolitical or neutral kind of criticism. Now, of course, that's not the only, you know, we could imagine a, a, a new global citizenship politics in which human rights are, become the kind of consent contentious uh, arguments that they, they once were, um, but that means deploying them, and I think in a different way as part of different movements and as part of movements that aren't just about rights, but about, you know, broader a broader attack on you know, disparities in, in power and wealth. So drawing on that, I know Jeet has a spectrum uh, where he's set you up against a few other favorites uh, of ours. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to mention the spectrum first? No, I don't think I want to mention the spectrum. I think that'd be too controversial. It's not controversial. No, I want to hear about the spectrum. <laughs> I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, so the first question I had was sort of linked to how you see anti, and I know you've already written about this, but how you sort of see anti-colonial struggles in the context of how, I mean, you, I know you've referred to a vast spectrum of anti-colonial struggles as well. You've, um, for example, the anti-colonial struggle in India, Gandhi used the language of human rights a lot to sort of um, make the British talk talk to him, but at the same time, it was a very political movement. And that's sort of the same in, in, in many other parts of the world. So my first question would sort of be, how do you see anti-colonial struggles in the context of whether it's human rights 1.0, was it politicized, was it a mixture of the two? And regarding the spectrum, it's, it's more <laughs> about, it's something we've been discussing from the first podcast as well. It's more about, you know, you have the United Nations, you have people in, in Geneva who work very hard on pushing forward documents that contain normative, well, legally reasoned language on, on human rights and, and international law as well. And I remember that you mentioned Louis Henkin and he said that, um, you know, that international law works because 
you know countries are sort of in you know ashamed into believing that possibly if i don't comply with these human rights norms that have been sort of drafted at drafted in geneva then there will be some sort of soft sanction mechanism on me mm-hmm. so my question on the specter is basically there are certain you know human rights activists who believe that or who work f- believing that human rights occur on the ground but there are also people who work from from geneva or work from the sort of the power centers of the world but still draft things that are you know at least legally very very valid so how do you sort of reconcile people on these two ends of the spectrum or do you think that there is anyone on this spectrum if you like who is maybe misusing the language of rights at all so those two sort of questions if you could address them yeah well they're fantastic questions that just require me to be somewhat long-winded so so i i would first you like to deny your factual premise that you know mohandas gandhi was a human rights activist I mean, it's a true that he occasionally referred to the rights of Englishmen, but he was really quite, you know, communitarian when he was asked by H.G. Wells in the midst of World War Two and by Julian Huxley on behalf of UNESCO the year before he died, whether he would say something in defense of human rights. He said he would rather have see a universal declaration of human duties. Uh, and and in the train of 19th century thinkers, especially one named Giuseppe Mazzini, he really was a cosmopolitan, as a cosmopolitan, but it was one that would focus on our, you know, interdependent duties to one another. Um, I think he 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 cannot plausibly be considered, um, you know, a a a proponent of human rights as we've come to see them work in the world. The question is a, a, a broader one about anti-colonialism. Now, as I've said, Human Rights 1.0 were anti-colonial from the beginning. Uh, in 1776, natural rights were the justification for violent insurrection. Uh, and in the 20th century, that principle became bound up with you know what's now the first right in the two UN covenants, the right to self-determination. What, what, what I think is hard to argue is that um, anti-colonialism was like human rights 2.0. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's advocates, especially, you know, icons who eventually led their states didn't talk much about individual rights they talked about collective emancipation mm-hmm. and nationalism and sovereignty and that includes people like you know Nehru I mean many Indians um, even when like other Indians on Bedkar they they really want to use rights for the sake of a reimagined citizenship very few as I see it work very hard on the kinds of international rights that provide hard constraints uh, from the outside on new states. In fact, the new states were the ones that probably established the most impregnable theory of national sovereignty in world history. Um, And moreover, the mobilizational style of anti-colonialism was by any means necessary, including violence. So I think it's just myth-making to claim the biggest liberation in human history, decolonization for what we now pursue as human rights, which is just a very different project. Now, your second question is is really interesting and tough. Um, I think there are good people in Geneva. There are two provisos, though. One is that originally the United Nations was where human rights went to die the United Nations is an organization of, by, and for the state that has generally worked as a default, as a, a device of, of universal collusion to have you know bad actors protect one another from scrutiny. It took others in movements to redeem human rights from that fate at the United Nations. Now it's more plausible that people at the UN in writing documents and reports and so forth can make a dent in evil because they are working, let's say, on a tight leash from states, but in tandem and an expectation that they have an audience in non-governmental audiences. However, it's for a selective set of norms. 
And at the UN, it's in ways that barely achieve notice and most often are futile. So can someone who goes to law school and goes to Geneva make a difference? Um, I would say, of course, under specific circumstances, under specific conditions and in, in particular circumstances. And so the act, activist who chooses that role has to think about what those are rather than count on like norms uh, hardening as if there weren't people involved and if people didn't ultimately matter. I don't believe that um, documents in their own right possess uh, any constraining power. It's only when people make something of them. And it's that that uh, people in Geneva can't uh, control and especially not guarantee. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm obviously a European human rights lawyer from the UK. And um, for me, I've always learned that obviously the 1950s with the establishment of the Human Rights Court and the beginning of taking cases, that was the, the foundation for human rights, the, the enforcement uh, of human rights through courts. And that was a very specific sure. conception of human rights. And so I, I'm curious to hear sort of why, why the 1970s is, is, sure. is different. Um, and, and I guess in a sense also, why so much is focused on America um, in, 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 in your work that, that I've read so far? And, and what are these other regional human rights bodies, including the ECHR, which sort of predate the 70s? Right. So I actually don't write much about America. Um, I, I give it credit actually earlier more than later, just because it does sponsor the first rights-based revolution, unless you want to you know, consider some English precedents. Um, and it just, in fact, is in control of the making of the United Nations and therefore the consecration of human rights and the UN Charter and so forth. In the 70s, I don't think it's, you know, a main actor. Amnesty International is primarily a West European group, and there are other states besides the U.S. Um, that invent human rights policies then. It's just that the U.S. Uh, innovations are so noticed and, you know, correlate with this extraordinary rise in prominence in the concept. Um, I, of course, talk about... Um, you know, the European convention and, you know, its, its, its importance can't be trivialized. It, it's probably true that I, I don't give it the attention it's due, but let's just consider that, you know, it's, it's, it's originally a Cold War project that um, drops the economic and social rights that had been in the Universal Declaration a year before its enforcement is um, state to state originally through this buffering commission, which is intended to, uh, uh, both of which are intended to be part of this, you know, collusive effect of states. Very rarely, like Ireland v. United Kingdom, do you actually have a state that's willing to incur the cost of state to state complaints to the point that. Uh, between the 50 and, and the 50s and the 70s, there were only 15 or 20 cases uh, even heard by the European court. Uh, I would even argue in the 80s, um, it's, it has nothing like the significance it does now and therefore for certain people in, in retrospect. Um, it was really moribund. Uh, you know, France didn't ratify the European Convention. Uh, decolonization had to end for all of these countries and most especially this one to um, think of themselves as primarily um, moral powers that stood for human rights principles in in international politics of course the big breaking point is the late 90s when you have these twin developments of the move to individual petitions as a matter of right and the human rights act which in an even more dualist country than mine implements the convention in this country, at which point we're off to the races. But I have a similar critique of um, like European human rights lawyers who think the European convention itself is very important as opposed to what 
was done with it and what later choices were made with respect to it decades later. I think the most interesting fact about the European Convention is that its own time, in its own time, its main supporters were um, were liberals who wanted to make clear their opposition to communism in the East, but also conservatives, including Tories like Winston Churchill, who led the charge, who wanted to use Europeanization as a device to potentially constrain the domestic advances of socialism. Uh, now, of course, that didn't happen except rhetorically because the European Convention was legally irrelevant uh, in the UK until very recently. Uh, but for a figure like Churchill, its significance was, especially once economic and social rights had been lopped off, to provide a moral language to defend liberty against planning, which meant the Labor Party, the National Health Service, the social welfare state, the drive to economic equality. Meanwhile, the ascendancy of the European Convention to a something that we would build our lives around as European human rights lawyers has coincided, just as an example, with the explosion of British inequality uh, on the ruins of socialism. So what's interesting there as well is that at the end of the 70s and, and, and well into the 80s and 90s, you see this decline in union membership in this country, especially as a result of the rise of neoliberalism. And, and that sort of constraint goes hand in hand with, with also the rise of human rights, which is a really interesting dichotomy. No, I mean, human rights activists are the successors to trade unions functionally and uh, trade unionists and human rights lawyers could be seen as the successors to socialists and the question is, why can't we have both? And do human rights want to take up the space of those bigger, more ambitious projects or just, uh, you know, play a role alongside them? Yeah, I, I want to pick up on this disjuncture, uh, mm -hmm. um, especially because uh, one of the things that you've noted about human rights so far in the conversation is um, the the challenge or at least the gap that emerges because of the individual basis of, of organization that when it comes to individuals imbued with human rights. Um, and I want to kind of put that in conversation because you, you as you so deftly did, um, putting it in conversation with collective bases of organization like um, socialist movements. Um, where, as you hinted uh, early on and as your uh, most recent work deals with, as we're living in a neoliberal era, it seems then that the individual focus of rights themselves then pose a problem as as a solution, as a, a space of organization against them. So I was wondering how you kind of talk about rights in the neoliberal It's a great era. question. I mean, this is the topic of a whole book that I have coming out, and then I'm done t writing about human rights history. Uh, but I'll, I'll just say, like, it's very tempting to note the, the chronological correspondence, if my dating is correct, with the explosion of neoliberalism in this country, the election of Mar Margaret Thatcher and so forth, um, and conclude grimly that, well, it was fated to happen, that human rights would just be an apologia for uh, you know, neoliberalism. And we can further note that, you know, one movement champions an individual agent who has rights, the other an individual agent who has interest to engage in free enterprise. And they're both about freedom from the state rather than entitlement to benefits from the state. Um, but this is too simple. Uh, so for one thing, you know, especially outside the European Convention, there are these economic and social rights that are about distributive justice. It's just that they're about sufficient provision. And um, what we need is, you know, if we believe in, in that, that material equality is a value, as had been true in the welfare states, um, you know, under the, you know, uh, you know, leadership of the old Labour Party at the time the Tories were working regionally for a European convention. We would want that concern about basic sufficient provision, housing, health, and so on, not to, you know, be condemned as neoliberal, uh, but to be saved from the risk that it, it cosmetically touches up a neoliberal, uh, uh, unequal society. So that means that as flexible principles, human rights need to be saved from their neoliberal companionship. 
and in particular put in a larger political movement that has material equality as one of its goals. Um, and then if that were done, I think we would worry less about the fact that human rights seem to be for individuals. Um, other principles can provide our, you know, serve our collective identities and, uh, you know, anti-racism can be about, you know, people of, of, of color and the way that they're, you know, of course, heard as individuals, but only because of their membership in a collective group. I see no reason why normative principles that are about individual entitlements can't coexist with more collective purposes. But it's true that this companionship with neoliberalism has um, given a lot of credence to the Marxist picture, which is too bad, um, and um, left the impression that the problem with human rights is that they're too individualist. But of course, individual freedom does matter. Individual agency and its legal institutionalization is all important. It's just it's not the only thing. And it shouldn't be converted into a rank uh, mystification of market freedom. Yeah, especially when it becomes so tied up with languages that are used by corporate functions like human resource management, where equality and diversity are literally the sort of bastions upon which these actors commit themselves to the workers and, and so on and so forth. It should be said that it's sort of thanks to the individualist basis of human rights that we've had major gains in status equality in a neoliberal era. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's why this like blanket critique of individualism is so disturbing because again, why should why shouldn't we welcome the advances that have been made in status equality for women, notably, and, and many others? Um, but we should question why we've, we've preferred status equality as if material equality were irrelevant, and in fact, taken advances in status equality as justifying uh, massive explosions of, of material inequality. Samuel Moyne's book will be out later this month. Here's his takeaway for the audience. You know, I'm I'm trying to give, you know, I presume this is an American expression, um, tough love to human rights and, and say that these are things that we've been convinced are, are so important that we've forgotten to put them in their proper place and in, in uh, amongst a series of other, you know, morally valuable ends and, and therefore political and legal projects. Um, and so the new book is attempting to figure out how that happened, um, how we, in a sense, um, have magnified the importance of human rights beyond their defensible limits uh, and saved ourselves the trouble of embedding them as we would a hammer in a toolbox amidst other tools and other projects. It's like our, our, our friend Chase said last time. is There's a, been a way, been an amorphous expansion of, oh, everything's human rights. Well, no, not really. The human rights toolkit is very good for some things. I, it's funny. I mean, Matt, you and I were talking about if you tell a tax lawyer that, hey, you know, tax law, it's great. It's essential for civilization. You know, we need it. And it's very political. Uh, but it's not everything. And the tax lawyer would be like, yeah, no kidding. But say that to a human rights lawyer, and I think they could take offense. Like, no, everything's human rights. Sadly, human rights lawyers are taught to think that they have single-handedly the you know, burden of saving the world. The trouble is that uh, I hope they don't because they're dreadful failures at it. Uh, so then we ask, why, why can't they have some help? And why can't they acknowledge that they play a role, but not the exclusive role in the achievement of moral progress? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What an interesting conversation, Matt. 
I know. I felt like there were so many questions there that we'd all been sort of grappling with in terms of situating ourselves as a human rights podcast. But then think about, you know, what are good practices and good ways of thinking about how we can advance this project in non-nefarious but goodwilled ways? Um, I think that the thing that I really took away from it was the sense that um, exposing the limits of rights doesn't mean that you have to throw them all away. And that's something that, um, as someone who is, you may have noticed listeners, is kind of critical of the Human Rights Project, what it represents, where it came from. Um, for many of the reasons that we discussed today, um, the particularistic nature of um, the, the specific rights that are illuminated, the way that power especially enforces how who's subject to what rights and, and how that influences world politics. Um, and... I hear that Professor Moyne hears those criticisms. Um, I just, I'm really fascinated by the fact that that doesn't necessarily mean that he has to toss the whole project away. So, so although I think that it's, ne- it's necessary and important to be nuanced in your approach, I do think that we should put, we should be very careful and put a lot of weight behind political mobilization that's based around anti-colonial struggles and that's based around anti-capitalist struggles and that's based around and and anti-racism and i think this this is something that that requires us to fundamentally transcend the human rights project right um and that's that's another piece a piece of what you said really really speaks to me especially um when professor Wynn was speaking um in relation to uh, anti-colonial struggles as well is the way that um, a lot of the discourse or the way that we talk about human rights co-ops history mm. and co-ops actors that themselves didn't articulate their goals in that language. Um, and I guess the question then becomes, uh, it's not to say, for example, that um, if you don't use the words human rights, you're not talking about human rights. But to what extent can we actually see those kind of movements as heritages of rights and I think unpacking that gives us a clearer idea not just of how as Professor my uh as Professor Moyne definitely points out um the actual way that human rights emerges but more importantly it's important to note that those kind of co-options of history occurred and what what do they legitimize right um why anchor yourself to these liberation struggles when that's not the specific way in which um, the the people who were in charge of the liberation campaigns were themselves articulating themselves that way? Well, then it gives you kind of an authority in the post-colonial moment to be able to say, this your, uh, your liberation struggle was a human rights struggle, and therefore we have the rights to then further the human rights campaign in this territory in this specific way and you are now subject to this because these were the terms of your decolonization um and so unpacking those kind of histories put casts hit human rights in kind of a different angle um and i i really appreciated thinking that through with professor moyne today absolutely so if you want to hear more about or read more about what Samuel Moyne has to say, do go check out his new book. It's called Not Enough. His previous books that are also mentioned in this podcast includes Last Utopia and Right to Have Rights. Thank you so much for joining in to this episode of the Declarations podcast. Um, for more on us, please feel free to check us out on Facebook at Declarations Podcast, on Twitter at Declarations Pod. And wherever you find your iTunes or other streaming services, please go ahead, like, subscribe, share, and we're looking forward to seeing you next week.